This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. The most memorable interviews and listener calls from the week that was on Fight Back with Libby Snymer. Welcome to the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown. Good afternoon and welcome to the Sunday edition of the best of Fight Back. More of what you want to hear from the week that was. The most recent conversation with our Tuesday strategy panel focused on how U.S. President Donald Trump has been handling the latest crisis in his country fueled by the death of George Floyd. As we all know by now, he is the 46-year-old black man who was restrained by the knee of a white police officer for nearly nine minutes until he stopped moving. There have been peaceful protests as well as violent demonstrations in big American cities over the past week against anti-black racism and police brutality. There have been thousands of arrests and many deaths as well. On Monday evening, Donald Trump warned U.S. governors that if they don't crack down on violent protests, he will send in the military to stop them. While filling in for Libby Snymer, I was joined by Charles Byrd, Managing Principal of Ernst Cliff Strategy Group in Toronto, Karen Stintz, former Toronto City Councillor and current CEO of Variety Village, and John Capobianco, Senior Vice President and Senior Partner, Fleischmann Hillard High Road. The fact that he's the leader of the free world, uh, and you would expect to have a leader sort of calm things down, um, incite some hope and and, uh, and you know and just ensure that that we don't get into uh, or the U.S. doesn't get into any more of, of these dangerous uh, protests that are happening. And in fact, the opposite's happening. I, you know, and, and I think it's, it's exasperated by the fact that you know they're in an election year, uh, and that everything he seems to be doing is all based around the fact that he is you know looking at poll numbers and making decisions based around poll numbers. And I think it's extremely dangerous to say the least. Um, but it's not helping. And of course, anything that happens to the south of us trickles up and, and affects us here in Canada. And I think, you know, and I'm just thankful that our leaders, from the prime minister to our premiers, um, have, have a much more calmer and a much more, um, you know, just a, a different perspective when it comes to handling these issues. And I think we're, we're obviously not seeing the, the, the protests that are happening here as, as, as deadly or as violent as we're seeing uh, to the south of us. Karen, I'd like to hear your take on that as well. In terms of the messaging, there is relative peace in Canada because everybody is on the same message from federal, provincial and municipal. Uh, whereas in the United States, uh, it seems as though Donald Trump has barely acknowledged George Floyd's death and the grievances of black Americans. These issues have existed in the United States for decades. But I think now the difference is that more people are marginalized, more people are unemployed. Uh, the, the virus has impacted black Americans so much more substantially than, than other groups in America. And it's a powder keg. And there is, there is nothing coming from the White House that indicates any kind of order or any kind of hope or any kind of path forward through all of this. And so people in, and every vacuum gets filled. Every void gets filled. So there is a complete vacuum, a complete void of leadership, and now it's being filled by these protests. And the, some people are out protesting legitimately for the cause of racial violence and tension in the U.S. Uh, other people are out causing mischief. Other people are out because there's nothing else to do. 
And so it is, it's, it's become um, something that I think we need to pay attention to, not because, um, you know, our leaders, of course, have taken a different tone and we're dealing with different issues and we're, we have a different political culture up in Canada. But the types of things that are leading to the escalating protest in, in the United States could exist here. And it's something that I do think we need to pay attention to. Charles, uh, your opinion on, on what's been going on over this last week? I would just say that the disproportionate impact of COVID-19 on Black Americans and Latino Americans has nothing to do with the color of their skin. It has everything to do with their socioeconomic um, status and the fact that they have um, traditionally faced systemic barriers that um, have kept them economically disadvantaged. And systemic racism is a significant problem in the United States, and, and I think we have to admit that it's a problem here in Canada. And it feels a bit like the exact same situation that's happening in long-term care homes in Ontario, which is these are problems that have been staring us in the face, hiding in plain sight, and we choose to divert our attention elsewhere, and suddenly we get a major explosion such as what's happened in Ontario, such as what's happening in the United States vis-a-vis uh, protests and riots and looting. And we wring our hands and think, oh, what is to be done? What is to be done? And precious little gets done. As for Donald Trump, I mean, this whole situation is a dream true. He, he came to office playing the politics of division, of contempt, of divisiveness. And this is right up his alley. And um, it's entirely possible that this is the kind of wedge, wedge issue that may actually give his almost dead campaign some breath of life, as appalling as it is to say it. Charles Bird, managing principal of Earnscliffe Strategy Group in Toronto. Karen Stins, former Toronto City Councillor and now CEO of Variety Village. And John Capobianco, Senior Vice President and Senior Partner, Fleischman Hillard High Road, our Tuesday strategy panel. This is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back. I'm Jane Brown. We also turn to some American voices on the crisis in the U.S. sparked by George Floyd's killing. By Wednesday, protests had started to become more subdued, with only sporadic reports of looting and violence. Meantime, religious leaders were condemning the use of tear gas to disperse peaceful protesters to make way for Donald Trump's church photo op on Monday night. Defense Secretary Mark T. Esper said on Wednesday he does not want active duty troops used on the streets of American cities to quell protests. His statement was at odds with the U.S. president's directive. On Wednesday, Libby Snymer spoke with Dr. Michael Flam, professor of history at Ohio Wesleyan University. Dr. Ronald Shuren, associate professor of political science at the University of Connecticut. And Bradley Palumbo, opinion columnist for the Washington Examiner and contributor at the Post Millennial. It has been a very surreal experience to be in Washington, D.C., or any major American city during this time of, of unrest. Uh, and I think it's very concerning because what we've really seen is a peaceful protest with a just cause. I mean, everybody knows that George Floyd did not deserve to die at the hands of the police like that. Uh, but we've really seen radical groups from Antifa and in a few cases, some white supremacist far right groups sneak into these protests and help turn them into riots where 
anarchy is happening on the streets, right? Rioting and looting and burning. Uh, they burned down a police department in a few cities. So that's why the military is being brought in in some instances or the National Guard. But it does look like this is abating. And we've actually seen the curfew start to be rolled back in D.C. starting today. So that's a sign that it is abating. Dr. Shuring, what's your view of uh, where these protests are at right now? Well, I think we're in vehement agreement on the counterproductive nature of the protests uh, turning into riots uh, and and the lawlessness. It it, it brings me back to some memories of of my own younger years in the late 60s when I was, in fact, tear-gassed in front of the White House in 1969, uh, whether that those protests... um, turned violent or were, were turned by people who had malevolent intent, uh, we'll never really know. The question is, what do we do now to remove not just the immediate effects of this, this horrendous violence, but the conditions that make it happen? Okay, I'd like to bring in Dr. Michael Flam, a professor of history at Ohio Wesleyan University. Where do you think we're at right now? Are the protests starting to abate? And where do you see American public opinion at? Is it divided or uh, is there a widespread condemnation of of the president, frankly, and and the, the fact that peaceful protests were dispersed for his photo op? Uh, well, we live in divisive times, so I think it's safe to say the American people are deeply divided on this issue as many others. Um, and undoubtedly, it will become partisan fodder, as has uh, even wearing masks uh, during the uh, pandemic. Um, I do just want to interject a brief comment here. Um, it's really, I think, important to remember that the people who uh, participate in uh, protests or demonstrations or whatever follows they generally fall into three groups. There are those who have uh, legitimate political grievances and want to express them peacefully. They tend to come out first. Then they're followed by the uh, the curious uh, bystanders and onlookers who want to simply see what's happening. And then last, there's a group that comes out generally under the cover of dark uh, that wants to burn, loot, destroy. Um, but it's important not to conflate these three groups together. Um, the police response to these three groups needs to be different. And uh, public attitudes towards these three groups and what they're trying to accomplish also needs to be different. And do you think it is? No, I think, unfortunately, uh, we tend to lump them all together. uh, And uh, too often we make general statements either in favor of or against what's happening without really looking at the details on the ground. Bradley Palumbo, how is the police being viewed? So it's an interesting phenomenon because you have basically divergent examples of police behavior. You know, there's viral videos going on of police uh, running people over with cars, of police uh, shooting journalists with rubber bullets unprovoked while they're airing. A CNN anchor, an African-American man, was arrested for no reason and not even told why he was being arrested by the police in Minneapolis. But we've also seen many instances of police policemen um, arresting rioters and looters, but praying with the protesters or showing solidarity or speaking out again about the death, uh, about Floyd's death. So the police reaction is, is very mixed. And, and the general sentiment towards these protests is just as mixed, because I think it's a very good point that we can't conflate all the groups involved, but that makes it much harder for the public who only gets viral fragments uh, to form their opinion. 
Bradley Palumbo, opinion columnist for the Washington Examiner and contributor at the Post Millennial. Dr. Michael Flam, professor of history at Ohio Wesleyan University. Dr. Ronald Shuren, associate professor of political science at the University of Connecticut. They were in conversation with Libby Snymer on Wednesday. I'm Jane Brown, and this is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back. Early this past week, Ontario's health minister said the daily COVID-19 case numbers are bobbing around and there's no evidence of an enduring decline. Is this a worrying trend or are higher case numbers just a function of higher test numbers? complicating the effects of the pandemic, primarily in the U.S., but here in Canada as well, are the anti-racism protests, which are expected to bolster another wave of COVID-19. There was also an interesting development this past week, which bolsters the lockdown strategy. Sweden's top epidemiologist has admitted his strategy to fight COVID-19 resulted in too many related deaths after persuading his country to avoid a strict lockdown. At 43 deaths per 100,000 people, Sweden's mortality rate is among the highest globally and far exceeds that of neighboring Denmark and Norway. Joining Libby Snymer on Wednesday, Dr. Timothy Sly, epidemiologist and professor at the School of Public Health at Toronto's Ryerson University, and Dr. Ray Dionandon, epidemiologist and associate professor in the Faculty of Health Sciences at the University of Ottawa. Well, it's important to remember that daily numbers aren't what we care about. It's the trend. There's going to be some jaggedness to the curve. However, the curve does not seem to be declining anymore. And that's the result, I think, of some poor behaviors of our citizens in the last few weeks. And we're seeing that manifest in the data now. What we're seeing here is a, uh, um, a refusal and transigence of our case numbers to decline in a meaningful fashion. Obviously, we haven't got a hold on community transmission in the hot zones of southern Ontario yet, and that's what needs to be focused on now. Most of Ontario is doing fine. It's, uh, it's certain key neighbourhoods in the southern part of the province that are problematic. Dr. Sly, what's your view of this? Well, Dr. Dean uh, uh, has got it spot on. What a lot of people I find are, are a bit confused with is the message at the beginning, if you remember, was flattening the curve. Do you remember that? Well, this, this, we are in the flat curve now, but that's not really a good thing. Well, what, if you had 400 cases yesterday and 400 cases today and 400 tomorrow, give or take, that curve is flattened. But don't forget, those are brand new cases every day adding to the total. What we should have been done by now is to gone down the other side of the curve where we're beginning to see maybe a couple of dozen, hopefully even single digits per day increase. That's where we should be aiming at. China did that after about uh, 82,000 cases. Uh, they brought it down to essentially zero per day. And New Zealand has done that as well. But we were nowhere near that. Okay, so we're not doing that, but we are still reopening. Now, it's true that the government has said that until they see cases decline, they're not going to the second stage, but we, we are reopening. There is shopping happening. There are even socially distanced, but people are getting together outside. Is that contributing to the problem, Ray? 
Yeah, it is. Uh, I'm going to be, have a push here for the regional solution. I keep saying that this is largely a southern Ontario issue. I think it is. Toronto and Peel, Halton are the, are the hot zones. Places like Kingston and Sudbury and Thunder Bay haven't had an active case in several days. So it's being driven by certain behaviors and activities in these hot zone parts of, of the province. And that's associated with low socioeconomic status. I'm not blaming the people largely. A lot of this is structural. People cannot distance themselves because they live together. They cannot uh, stay home from work because their work demands they go to work. So there are some strategies that have to be put into place where we support people in their efforts to physically distance and to keep themselves safe. Dr. Sly, does this mean, for instance, uh, you know, that that people who are not in those hotspot pockets should just kind of keep going, keep doing what they're doing? Well, one of the things we, we've learned about this pandemic is, is that the reaction is not homogeneous. It's not the same for all parts of the province, all parts of the country. Downtown Toronto, downtown Montreal are going to have a different set of urgency about uh, keeping the control measures going than other provinces that have a pretty pretty low rate. But you also fail to add, by the way, Libby, that uh, uh, street uh, uh, demonstrations and, and uh, riots are somewhat of a, a concern at the moment. I set your watch for about seven to ten days, and we should see the increase going up in the U.S., Canada, and the rest of the world. Okay, and uh, Dr. Dionandon? My last comment is always the same. This is a partnership between decision makers, scientists, and the public. And the public has to do their part, act responsibly, follow public health guidelines. Dr. Ray Diodanen, epidemiologist and associate professor in the Faculty of Health Sciences at the University of Ottawa, and Dr. Timothy Sly, epidemiologist and professor at the School of Public Health at Toronto's Ryerson University. I'm Jane Brown, and this is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back. Do you suspect anyone you know of fraudulently collecting the emergency response benefit or the student benefit or the wage subsidy? You can now report them to the Canada Revenue Agency's official snitch line. Even though this measure was put in place early this past week, no one from the responsible agencies would come on fight back to talk about it. Cheating the government is not the only fraud connected to the CERB. Scammers are targeting Canadians who are legitimately eligible for the benefit and need it badly, with, among other things, a scam offering assistance. Libby Snymer spoke with OPP Constable Catherine Yarmel about this, but first she was joined by Aaron Woodrick, Federal Director of the Canadian Taxpayers Federation, and Toby Sanger, Director of Canadians for Tax Fairness, about the CERB snitch line. There was a lot of confusion about these programs and when they were set up, there was a lot of confusion and um, wrong information also sent out by some ministers and uh, and some MPs. So there, so there will be uh, probably a lot of people who have applied and uh, some who didn't fit into the qualifications there for it who may not qualify. My big concern here, and there's a lot more money available uh, for it is uh, is the opportunities for misuse and abuse and fraudulent behavior by by some of the businesses. Aaron Woodrick, what's your take? Well, look, there's always going to be a trade-off when you're in a rush between uh, efficiency and there's going to be some abuse. And I think most people are willing to cut the government slack in the situation. It's obviously an emergency, and so it wasn't ever going to be perfect. Um, but what was troubling was they didn't seem to really signal. They seemed to openly signal, certainly in the memos to their staff, that 
you know, don't even do anything about abuse. Uh, and I think that really uh, provides a perverse incentive for some people. Um, so, look, I think the government, um, we have to cut them slack generally because they're moving in a real hurry here. But I think as they go along, they need to look at ways to tighten things up. I think most Canadians support these programs um, in an emergency, uh, but they don't have a lot of tolerance for anyone, individual or business, that is abusing, uh, you know, defrauding the system at a time like this. Aaron, in, in general, a new Auditor General was just named. What kind of special scrutiny do you think that requires? Well, we, well, there's a lot of money, so a lot of scrutiny. And I'm in complete agreement with Toby on this point, on the transparency point. It's very hard to have accountability without transparency. And we're going to have lots of debates about what the right moves are and whether money is well spent. But it's hard to make those assessments if we don't have the information. So I'm all for more transparency about how the government is spending money, who they're giving contracts to, um, and under what conditions. Okay. Uh, and Tony, anything you want to leave us with? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's uh, it, it'll be an issue also going into the recovery phase. I know that the, the, the parliamentary budget office has done a great job, and I got to say, the auditor generals have also done a great job. Um, they're going to have a lot of work to do. They're probably going to need they and the CRA will need more 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 funding. But we we got to have more transparency. Canada actually gave uh, money to Paraguay. Uh, which uh, now publishes all the money that they're giving out, all the details, all the money that they're giving out. So if we're supporting other governments to do this, uh, we should be doing that as well. Now we are going to Provincial Constable Catherine Yarmel with the OPP. How widespread and, and what type of scams are we seeing with the CERB? Well, we are seeing uh, across the country, we've had uh, information come to us through the Canadian Anti-Fraud Centre. There is a scam called the uh, Emergency Response Benefit Scam, and that's really a scam that capitalizes on persons' fears, vulnerabilities, uncertainties, perhaps, and lack of information on how to uh, complete the CERB application. And so what these companies are starting to do, these illegitimate companies, are contacting people uh, through email, text messages, or perhaps phone calls, and uh, they're saying, listen, can we give you a hand filling out your CERB application? And once this has been done, they've got your personal information, and, uh, and then they may send you an invoice for those services rendered. So that's what we've been seeing um, across Canada. Be aware of the warning signs with frauds. Um, you know, never give out your personal information. That's, that's the, the big tip. Um, Don't respond to those unsolicited emails and text messages. Don't open any links. Um, They could have a malicious uh, type of software um, attached to it. Um, And one of the key things I think when, you know, the advice I give to to anyone at any age, because a fraud can happen to anyone, um, is that you need to take a step back and look at what you've been given and or the information that's been asked of you. And again, ask yourself those questions. Did I ask for this information? Um, you know, what are they asking me for? Um, again, you know, for example, is it is it information that this particular institution, such as a bank or such as the Canada Revenue Agency, should already have? Um, resist the urge to act quickly. I think that's a very big piece in uh, in educating ourselves. Um, you know, when we deal with these fraudulent scams. 
OPP Constable Catherine Yarmel, Aaron Woodrick, Federal Director of the Canadian Taxpayers Federation, and Toby Sanger, Director of Canadians for Tax Fairness. You're listening to the best of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. I'm Jane Brown. Fight Back with Libby Snymer brings you comprehensive coverage of the news stories that interest you and your reaction to them on the phones. And now... Fightback's Knockout Call of the Week. There were a lot of great calls this week, but the winner of the Fightback Knockout Call of the Week comes from Peter in Newmarket, who phoned to talk about his belief in mass testing for COVID-19. We had a situation at the golf course. Uh, A young lad, his father, uh, was put into hospital with... uh, uh, COVID-19 symptoms, and uh, on occasion, this young fellow used the same golf cart that I did, and I couldn't remember if I had come in contact with him uh, during the uh, uh, period that was mentioned, so I immediately went uh, to South Lake Hospital and got tested. I agree that uh, anybody should take the time to go and get tested, and uh, that would give true numbers that uh, could be reported. That does it for this week's Best of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. If you'd like to qualify for the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week, phone us noon to one weekdays. Or if you have a comment, email us at fightback at zoomer.ca. Follow us on Twitter at fightbacklibby and have your say anytime on our Fight Back voicemail at 416-367-9636. 416-367-9636. I'm Jane Brown. Join me again next weekend when we'll round up the best of Fight Back. The best of Fight Back is produced by Jane Brown, Justin Eacock, and Zeev Hadi, with technical production by Kelly Robotham. Executive producer, Moses Neimer. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.